Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Wednesday. We are halfway through the week. I hope everyone has had a great week so far. Today we are going to talk about a subject that you guys have been asking me to talk about for a while, and that's going to be the subject of Christian leaders kind of letting us down or letting their congregants down, letting their followers down, the people who have learned from them, who have benefited from their teaching, who feel that their affections for the Lord have been stirred by uh, the teachings and uh, the studies that uh, these pastors and these leaders have published over the years. And these leaders are Carl Lentz of Hillsong, Ravi Zacharias, the very esteemed apologist, um, and then Max Lucado, who is an author and a pastor. There are three very different. Um, well, two of them are similar, but three very different scenarios in which I think believers are looking to these leaders and wondering, okay, am I able to trust this person's teachings? How should I feel about all of this? And how do I feel if this teacher, if I feel like that teacher laid a foundation for my faith, and now I feel like that foundation is is crumbling, what do I do? Um, so first, let's talk about what happened. And then we're going to get a biblical perspective of how we are to look at Christian teachers in general, but especially after it has been revealed that their character is not the character of Christ, that is not congruent with the Christian life. So first, let's talk about Carl Lentz. I've been avoiding talking about this, I think because um, I didn't want it to seem in any way that I that I was saying, I told you so, or rubbing this in people's faces. And the reason why I was sensitive about that and slow to talk about this is because I have serious theological disagreements uh, with Hillsong and in particular, Carl Lentz. And I have serious political disagreements with Carl Lentz. And I've talked about his stances negatively on this podcast before, his social justice activism, how wrong I think he is on issues of race and so-called racial justice and social justice, how unbiblical some of his Instagram posts have been when it comes to, for example, Black Lives Matter and what justice actually looks like. It doesn't seem that his views on that are actually rooted in scripture, but are actually rooted and popular social movements. And so because I've been critical of him in other ways, I was slow to talk about this scenario because I didn't want it to seem like I was gleeful about it or like I was um, gloating in any way. And I didn't want it to come across as gossip because the fact of the matter is, is that yes, I do disagree with Carl Lentz on lots of things. We probably agree on lots of things too, but I do disagree with him on lots of things. I have been very skeptical of his leadership and his pastoral abilities for a long time, um, but I am not happy <laughs> about this story. I'm not happy to talk about this scandal. I am not gleeful. I'm not gloating in any way when someone who professes to be a Christian and who has a lot of believers following them um, falls and shows themselves to be a hypocrite, shows themselves to be leading two lives, to have one character that they show on stage on Sunday and then uh, another a, another part of their character that reveals who they really are. Um, it's sad. And so I'm sad about this. I want you to know that before I explain what happened, that I'm sad about this. I'm not in any way trying to say, look, I told you so. And, you know, this is just a product of Hillsong. I'm not trying to make that argument at all. 
But uh, let me tell you what happened. It was revealed recently. I think it was last uh, November. So it was several months ago now that it was revealed that he had been uh, in an affair or engaging in a months long affair with a woman named Renine Kareem. She is a designer. They met somewhere in New York, I think at like a park in New York, and they ended up talking. They exchanged numbers and then they started getting together. It seems like it was just for kind of emotional support at first. And then, of course, it turned physical into, into a full-fledged affair. They were talking, apparently, according to her, she did a few interviews. They were talking constantly, and they were really each other's person. Like, they they seemed to have fallen in love with each other, at least from her testimony. And then, um, according to her story, Carl Lentz's wife found text messages on his phone, and that's when the whole thing kind of blew up, and that's when the whole thing ended. And eventually, he had to um, talk about it publicly, and he had to admit what happened. As far as I know, and of course, there's so little that we know. We only see the surface level. There's always so much going on behind the scenes. As far as I can tell from what we can see publicly, Carl Lentz and his wife um, are uh, are working through this. They are still married. Uh, Carl Lentz stepped down from his position as pastor of Hillsong NYC. Uh, Brian Houston is the head of Hillsong, um, and there was leaked audio that went more into depth on what was happening behind the scenes um, that caused or that precipitated the resignation of Carl Lentz. Apparently, it was more uh, than just this affair, but here's part of what the audio says. A staff member found a very compromising chain of text messages on Carl's laptop. We drove right across town to talk to Carl and confront him, and that was the beginning of the process we are at now. So that's a little bit different than the story that we originally heard from the woman that Carl Lentz was having an affair with. Uh, when we talk about an affair, these issues were more than one affair. They were significant, and at least some bad moral behavior had gone back historically, but not necessarily those affairs, Houston said in the recording obtained by Page Six. If it was just about a moral failure, perhaps it would have been possible to work our way through it and have a period of restoration, but the nature of where my relationship was with Carl already, and then to add the significant nature of the moral issues meant that I believed, and our global board believed, the only option was to terminate Carl. Uh, then Houston said that there had been problems with Lentz ahead of the affair revelations. He was a difficult man to have any kind of direct conversation with because he was always defensive. It would always be put back uh, on the other person as though they were the ones with the problem, which is, you know, a typical gaslighting tactic of people with, you know, kind of narcissistic personalities, if I can say that. They were not easy meetings, and I already, and I was already at the point at the end of the summer that I felt like Carl and Laura's time in New York was coming to an end. This is what Brian Houston, the head of Hillsong, was saying. Uh, not just general narcissistic behavior, so he uses the word narcissistic too, manipulating, mistreating people. I think sometimes other hurtful things, the breaches of trust connected to lying, constantly lying, basically broken trust. He said the church had hired a New York law firm, 
as an independent investigator to probe Lentz's leadership. So again, we don't know everything that's going on behind the scenes. We don't know what leadership decisions were made. It sounds like Brian Houston knew that Carl Lentz needed to be let go and needed to be fired. And I do think it's good to have uh, to hire an independent investigator just to make sure that there wasn't a pattern of behavior that actually victimized people within the church. If that is the case, then that needs to be found out and that needs to be dealt with. And if there was actual abuse, then obviously that has to be dealt with in the civic realm. Like that has to be dealt with on a legal level, not just a church discipline level as well. Um, Lentz was a personal spiritual advisor to Justin Bieber at one point. I don't know if that's still happening. Um, He baptized Justin Bieber in a bathtub. Justin and Haley Bieber um, apparently ended their relationship with him months before the scandal broke. I don't have any more details on that. And so um, it is interesting. I will say it is interesting why while Carl Lentz was posting all of this social justice stuff while he was gaining followers and he was uh, gaining a reputation among social justice activists, some of them professing Christians, some of them not, this was going on behind the scenes. It does seem like so often performative activism, um, whether that's in the form of, you know, social media posts or using the right woke language or holding a woke sign, whatever it is that people see that as a way to insulate themselves from criticism in other areas of their life. They feel like if they have enough social justice points, if they say the right things about systemic racism, or they say the right things about police brutality, or they post the right things, the 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 black square, the right rhetoric and language, they talk to the right people, they listen and learn, they read the right books, Some, it seems like, use that as an insulation from people peering into other parts of their life that actually reveal their truer character than their performative activism does on social media. Um, And so I don't know that that's the case with Carl Lentz, but it's interesting how often he invoked the name of God and invoked the Bible to, I think, erroneously defend his left-wing social justice views uh, all the while obviously his heart at least in this period was was far from God the name of God might have been on his lips but at this time at this period his heart seemed to have been far from God and that's true of all of us if we persist in a sin sin separates us from God um, and so I think this is tragic for his family it's tragic for Carl Lentz it's tragic for the people that go to Hillsong And I wish I could say that, oh, well, this only happens when you have someone like Carl Lentz, who obviously only had a superficial understanding of theology. That's the assessment that I would have given, that he is kind of a feel-good preacher that makes people want to come to his church simply because they know that he's not really going to talk about the hard stuff, and he's really more about how he sounds and what he looks like than preaching the gospel and preaching sin and salvation. That is the assessment that I would give of Carl Lentz, and I wish I could say, look, this is just what happens when you don't have depth. This is just what happens when you don't have substance. This is just what happens when you have bad theology. 
strategy. But then that kind of assertion gets very muddled when you look at someone like Ravi Zacharias, who is just about as theologically solid as as anyone. That doesn't mean I agree with him on everything, but I don't think anyone would have said, well, Ravi Zacharias doesn't really know scripture. He doesn't really preach the full gospel. And so I can't just say, well, you know, this is just a product of Hillsong and superficial theology and celebrity pastors that wear skinny jeans and have tattoos and care more about what they look like. Because while Ravi Zacharias is a celebrity pastor, he doesn't fit the same characterization as Carl Lentz does. The through line that we're going to see in this is sin that can unfortunately happen to uh, anyone. And so I'm going to explain now the Ravi Zacharias scandal, and then we're going to tie this all together with a biblical perspective of how we should react to it. First, I am going to tell you guys about a sponsor, and that is Bambi. So when you are running a business, if you're a small business owner, I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't already know. You know that Uh, Human resources issues, HR issues can really hurt your business. They can really hold you back. If you've got wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, like you are working really hard to meet all of those things and just to stay afloat, not to mention try to make some kind of profit if you are running a small business with a few employees. An HR manager uh, is really difficult to hire if you're in that situation because they're not cheap. It's an average of $70,000 a year to hire an HR manager, and you might not be able to afford that, but you need someone to manage all of your HR problems so that you don't have to be, you know, juggling too many items so that you are unable to run your business. So if you need a way to manage as a business owner, your uh, human resources department or your human resources issues, then you need Bambi. That is B-A-M. B-E-E. It was created specifically for small businesses. You get a dedicated HR manager to craft your HR policy, maintain your compliance, all just for $90 a month. You are saving tens of thousands of dollars by hiring Bambi rather than hiring your own singular dedicated HR manager. With Bambi, You can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. So it really is having like having a remote HR manager that you can rely on. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month Month-to-month, no hidden fees. You can cancel at any time. You don't have to worry about long-term contracts. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend all of your time on HR compliance. You actually love what you do. You want to get your product out. You want to get your service out and hopefully at some point uh, make a profit from your small business. You want to take care of your employees, but you need HR. That's just not something that you can avoid. And Bambi is here to help small businesses manage their HR department. So let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash Allie. That's A-L-L-I-E. Go to Bambi.com slash Alley to schedule your free HR audit. That is Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash Alley. That's A-L-L-I-E. Okay, let's talk about Ravi Zacharias. Now, I'm going to put in the description to this pod of this podcast uh, the past episode that I did on Ravi uh, Zacharias because we have talked about this when this first came out. Um, after he died, he died 
about a, was it a year ago now? I'm not sure. It was it was several several months ago. It might have been over the summer uh, that he died, and it came out that um, he had unfortunately been treating employees of the spa that he had part owner ownership of. Um, he had been uh, sexually harassing them, and even forms of sexual abuse uh, were found out. I think a lot of people did not want to believe it because Ravi Zacharias and his apologetics tools, his books, his speeches have really helped a lot of people understand the Christian faith and be able to defend the Christian faith. And in that way has stirred their affections for the Lord um, and has propelled them towards understanding God's word and uh, better grasping the gospel. Now on that, I want to read a passage that um, that applies to this situation and just the idea that you can no longer trust your faith or you can no longer trust your growth uh, because the person that helped you grow or whose materials helped you grow um, no longer can be trusted because they have revealed a character or a part of themselves um, that you that you are realizing. Uh, that you are realizing is incongruent with the faith that they professed to have. So let me read you 1 Corinthians 3, 4 through 7. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed is the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. So if your faith was cultivated by reading Ravi Zacharias, or hey, maybe even listening to a Carl Lentz sermon, and it caused you to go deeper into the gospel and to understand and desire God's word more, if it uh, made you uh, more excited to understand who God is and to seek after Christ, uh, that faith does not become counterfeit just because a teacher has revealed himself to be counterfeit or just because a teacher has revealed himself to lead a double life. If they are preaching the word of God, that's still the word of God. Remember, Paul also says, whether by pretense or by truth, the gospel was proclaimed. And he's talking about in Philippians 1, how there were people that were preaching the gospel for selfish ambition and for selfish gain, maybe in some way to try to hurt Paul. And Paul is saying, okay, so what do I make of all of that? If there are people who have bad hearts, who have bad motivations that are preaching the gospel, how am I supposed to deal with that? And Paul says, whether by pretense or by truth, the gospel was proclaimed. And so if you are someone that understood the gospel because you heard it from Ron Zacharias, or you heard it from another teacher who later left the faith or revealed that they were leading a double life, that does not make the gospel counterfeit. And that certainly does not make your faith counterfeit because Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith, as Hebrews says. And 1 Corinthians 3 says that it is God who gives growth. Philippians 1 says, whether by pretense or by truth, the gospel was proclaimed. Philippians also talks about that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good purpose. So your faith is genuine because God is genuine. Your faith is real because God is real. Your faith is not dependent on the trustworthiness of Carl Lentz or the trustworthiness of Ravi Zacharias. Your faith is based on the trustworthiness of God who does not change, as Hebrews 13, 8 says. He is reliable. He is the author of your faith. He is the one who gives growth. 
Now, let me talk a little bit more about Ravi Zacharias and uh, what exactly uh, what exactly happened in all of this, because I think I, the reason why I went that direction is because I think most of you already know the details of it. We've talked about the details of it, um, but there is a, a little bit more here. So Ruth Ma- Malhotra, I actually met her several years ago. Um, she's a very, very sweet person. And from what I can tell, a very trustworthy person. She's the PR manager and spokesperson for RZIM. Uh, she wrote a 26-page letter to the RZIM board on February 6th. Uh, she detailed the various ways in which she was misled and how she was put into compromising positions given how questions were being raised as evidence of the late apologist misconduct uh, continued uh, to emerge. Ravi first started being exposed in 2017 for inflating his academic credentials and grooming a Canadian woman, Lori Ann Thompson, online. Ruth says that after Ravi sued Thompson for racketeering, claiming they were attempting to extort money from him, she was left to, quote, field questions about the apologist and the integrity of the ministry, for which she had no good answers. But when she pressed her colleagues for more information, she said she encountered internal resistance. In her letter to the board, uh, she wrote that within the organization, she felt systemically marginalized, maligned, and misrepresented to others by key members of senior leadership. The RZIM senior leadership met with Nancy Gifford, the global media director and Ruth in an off-site conference room for a three-day conciliation meeting, which then turned out to be a tense session where senior leaders vented to Malhotra and uh, the outside conciliator they had hired, Judy Dabbler, allegedly told her that she was one step away from complete and total insanity. And so apparently Ruth was um, just gaslighted and maligned when she tried to bring up these concerns several years ago. Zacharias's daughter, Sarah Davis, subsequently asked Malhotra to go to Dabbler Center by herself for a week of intensive sessions. So she was made to feel like she was crazy for bringing up these concerns. I know I've said gaslighting a few times, but that's what gaslighting is. And it is the language of and it is the tactic of an abuser. Um, they said, uh, I don't want to force my hand on this, uh, but I'm prepared to do so, Davis reportedly told Malhotra. Uh, so Ruth, in her letter to the board, said this, I believe that the leadership's treatment of me in 2017 and 2018 was unacceptable and revealing of the toxic environment at RZIM that has existed for far too long. In summary, what senior leadership subjected me to was personally traumatizing, uh, publicly shaming, and potentially spiritually abusive. I have reasons to believe that I am I'm not the only RZIM staff member who uh, has suffered due to the approach and actions of senior leadership. And I pray that when possible, my colleagues' voices will be heard and acknowledged as well. So underneath the affairs that were apparently going on and the abuse that was going on uh, between Ravi Zacharias and the women who worked at the spa that he partly owned, apparently he, um, you know, like revealed himself to them and asked them to do sexual things with him that they were not comfortable with, but they felt coerced into because, of course, he's in a position of power and leadership and he's this great man of God who has uh, helped these women find a job. Some of these women were in very vulnerable and desperate situations and they were able to find employment uh, through him and uh, through his spa. So not only was all of that happening, but underneath there was a toxic environment at the ministry, which very often happens. It's kind of what we 
saw with Carl Lentz that there were underneath leadership issues going on there, that these things don't happen in a vacuum. There are people typically who speak up and they they might not know everything that's going on in the same way that everyone didn't know what was going on with Carl Lentz. Not everyone knew that, uh, you know, he was having an affair. They knew that there were some integrity issues there. They they knew that there was some narcissism there. There was some selfishness there. There were some character issues there. It seems like the same thing was going on with Ravi Zacharias, not just with him personally, but also with his team, that there was this kind of environment of you don't get to ask those kinds of questions. Uh, you don't get to make any accusations. You don't get to point out any of your concerns without being told that you're a crazy person and you're going to be pushed uh, to the margins. That's what seems to have happened, according to Ruth Malhotra at um, RZIM. Um, and so we see that there's always something going on beneath the surface. Typically, the scandal that comes out is just the tip of the iceberg. And I think that's a good practical lesson for us to see and for us to learn um, that when people raise those kinds of concerns about a business or about an organization, of course, they need to be looked into and made sure that this is not just a person who has a grievance or this is not just, you know, a person who is making a mountain out of a molehill. Of course, you have to look at the facts and you have to look at the reliability of someone's testimony and someone's complaint. That is absolutely true. But if it is consistent, and especially if it's represented, if it's a concern represented by more than one person, and it speaks to some kind of pattern of behavior of a particular leader or leadership or environment, then it needs to be looked into. People cannot be gaslit for making complaints and for raising concerns uh, that end up being legitimate and end up throwing a ministry or an organization and a church into a scandal that Maybe it couldn't have been avoided, but it certainly could have been dealt with better. And now you're talking about not just physical abuse that came from Ravi Zacharias, but potentially spiritual abuse as well. I mean, that is going to have an effect on someone's emotional health and potentially their psyche for the rest of their lives. I mean, we can't treat image bearers. We can't treat people this lightly to where we are so desperate to insulate a particular leader or a particular church or entity or ministry from scandal and disrepute and bad PR that we are unwilling to hold people accountable that God says because they're in sin, we have to hold accountable. Remember, teachers are held to a higher standard. Pastors are held to a higher standard than just anyone. The Bible says not all of you should be teachers. Um, that uh, there is a particular responsibility and there is a particular level of um, there is a particular level of integrity that is expected, especially from people who are uh, leading others in doctrine, who are shepherding people and shepherding churches and shepherding uh, ministries. And so uh, this is a particularly sad case because, like I said, people have relied on Ravi Zacharias for a better understanding of apologetics. Um, he's not he wasn't necessarily in my Rolodex growing up of you know people that I listened to. But, hey, there are people that I listened to uh, growing up and sermons that I listened to. Uh, by people who I would not listen to today, not necessarily because they've been caught in scandal, but because I realize that they're not theologically uh, theologically sound. So if you are someone who relied on Ravi Zacharias' work, then uh, you shouldn't judge yourself or criticize yourself for that. Of course, you didn't know. And so much of what he did and what his ministry did 
was sound. And there's no changing that. There's no changing that. The fact of the matter is, is that Ravi Zacharias, just like you and me, um, are people who are dead in sin apart from Christ and who Satan uh, desperately wants to tempt and desperately wants to trip and desperately wants to make fall. So Ravi Zacharias uh, was someone who was caught in sin. He was someone who gave into temptation and he victimized people along the way. I don't know what the end of his life looked like if he repented from those things, but if he was in that sin unrepentantly and consistently, then that speaks to the question of his salvation, not just whether or not, okay, was he an okay person? Was he an okay leader? But was he actually saved? And that's a really hard question, I think, for us to ask uh, about leaders who have been so esteemed for so long. When we talk about false teachers, typically we're talking about false teachings. We're talking about people like Rob Bell, who don't believe in hell, who are basically universalists or people who don't believe in the Trinity, don't believe that Jesus was God. Like we're typically talking about some kind of heresy uh, when we're talking about false teachers. But I think something that we need to learn is that uh, false teachers, they can be false even if they are saying things that are true because their lives and their hearts aren't actually regenerated by the gospel. Um, so you've probably heard that phrase before that people uh, miss heaven by 18 inches. 18 inches is the, the length between the head and the heart. And so someone can have all of the intellectual knowledge in the world about Christianity, they can be very theologically sound because they understand what logically makes sense with the Bible, or they can just repeat what they've heard before. Or, hey, if you're someone like Ravi Zacharias, you've made a career out of the kind of theology and the kind of apologetics that he espoused. That could have been, I don't know for sure, but that could have been all intellectual knowledge. And he could have not had a regenerate heart. That could absolutely be the case. Like I said, I don't know um, about his repentance. I don't know what his last days were like. I don't know what what that looked like, but I do know it seems like he was consistently leading a life that was not congruent with someone whose heart has been regenerated. Am I saying that Christians don't sin or can't be caught in sin or can't uh, go through a season of struggling and a season of really trying and sometimes failing to resist temptation? No, I'm not saying that at all. I don't think that we can reach perfection um, on this side of eternity. And that's not what I'm saying, that Ravi Zacharias had to prove himself to be perfect. But to continue in this kind of abuse and this kind of sexual immorality does speak to a heart that has still been hardened by sin, who is still callous, who is still um, dead in his sin. And I think that the Bible is, is extremely clear on that. And it's actually comforting that we can look to the objective standard of scripture. We can look to the standards of the gospel and we don't have to kind of pick and choose who we want to be genuine and who we want not to be genuine based on our um, you know, on our liking of them or our liking of the apologetic work that they published. 
And so um, I understand that this is very sad for a lot of people. And unfortunately, I've seen some people kind of like write it off and push it to the side because they think that this is just he's just being another, you know, victim of secularists and the Me Too movement. I don't think that that is the case. I don't think that's the case. I do not think that if there were a sliver of doubt um, that he was guilty of these crimes, that his ministry, RZIM, would be coming out and revealing the results of the investigation, which has, I think, multiple times now revealed that he actually is guilty of the abuse that he has been accused of by various women. Um, and so I think that we just need to, as, as far as we can, trust the results of the investigation. I mean, we'll never know the whole story. We'll never know for sure. We'll never know, you know, what his side of the story is. But I think we have as reliable of testimony and reliable um, of, of results from an investigation that we can possibly have. And we just have to kind of live in this uncomfortable reality that people can talk the talk really well and they may not be walking the walk. And a false teacher can be a false teacher, even if they're preaching the right things, because their lives and their hearts um, are not actually in line with the truth and regenerated by the truth. Again, that passage that says whether by pretense or by truth, the gospel was proclaimed. The people that were preaching the gospel, as um, as Paul is talking about in First Corinthians, were doing so. Uh, by pretense, sorry, not First Corinthians, Philippians, uh, were doing so under a false pretense. They were doing so from selfish ambition, but they were still preaching that which is true. Now, he said that the gospel is still effective, but he did not say that those teachers were going to avoid wrath, that those teachers were regenerate, that those teachers were actually saved. He just said, look, God used these people who had selfish ambition to still preach his truth. And so we can still praise God for that, because remember, 1 Corinthians 3 says it is God who gives growth. And so we can still say thank you for using these very imperfect, sinful vessels to reach anyone for Christ. Please, Lord, uh, keep those people who are now questioning their faith and strengthen them and make them realize that it is God who authors our faith and grows our faith and not imperfect teachers. So I think that's how we need to look at that. Uh, there was a really interesting article in Religion News by a woman who she was promoting her book and she was talking about the dangers of purity culture and how and I've talked about the dangers of purity culture, too. People think they mischaracterize me and my views as someone who like loves legalistic sex policy uh, within the church. And that would not be an accurate depiction of my views. I think that there uh, that there are problems with purity culture because it is emphasizing the wrong things. It emphasizes the dirtiness and the lack of forgiveness for someone who has sinned sexually and does not emphasize why uh, we care about purity and why we care about sexual immorality and the joy of following Christ with not just our hearts and our souls, but our minds and our and our bodies as well. Um, so I think it just kind of purity culture, especially just in the Bible Belt evangelical church in like the 90s, 80s, early 2000s was very legalistic, very much emphasized that if you do this, you'll be like this, uh, you know, tattered blanket, you'll be like this used car. I remember reading a book 
that said that the farther you go, you know, with your boyfriend, the more of a used car you'll be. And no one's going to want to take you off the lot after that because your value is so depreciated. How freaking un Christ-like and uh, void of the gospel is that kind of message. And so this particular, uh, this that just makes me so, so angry, so angry that some people have been manipulated by that kind of false, that kind of false message. But um, this particular author of this article was talking about how maybe that kind of messaging has possibly led to men in power being able to um, being able to go on stage and gain the respect of thousands, if not millions of people. And behind the scenes, they still kind of have this um, they have this, you know, sexual sin or this sexual abuse in some cases uh, that is going on because men weren't held to the same standard as women in purity culture. And it was also regarded in several kind of evangelical books growing up that men just have this like carnal desire and this lust that has to be satiated. And if it's not satiated, uh, completely and totally and consistently by their wives, then they're going to go out and they're going to have affairs. And so their responsibility was almost placed on women and wives sometimes if their husband was unfaithful or doing things like Carl Lentz and Ravi Zacharias were. And so this person was pondering whether or not that part of purity culture had anything to do uh, you know, with these scandals between Carl Lentz and Ravi Zacharias. I don't know. I think it's really easy to take you know, to have to start with our theory and then to find evidence to back up our theory. I think that's possible. Like I said, I think that there are problems uh, with purity culture. I do think that we need to emphasize, not de-emphasize purity and not de-emphasize the sin of sexual immorality, but talk much more about the forgiveness and the grace and the regeneration. I guess regeneration is like my favorite word for this episode today. Um, of the gospel and how that means that our bodies, that our entire selves become living sacrifices for Christ, which naturally and necessarily encompasses purity, but not because it messes us up or makes us less valuable when we sexually sin, but because God loves us so much and he wants what's best for our bodies. He wants what's best for our hearts. He wants what's best for our minds and people who love him, trust him and they trust his rules. They trust his boundaries. They trust his goodness. They trust that he knows best what love looks like, what passion looks like, what pleasure looks like. And we fully rely on him to define these things. And we follow him in all of those areas. I think purity culture in the evangelical church de-emphasized the heart behind purity and put it all um, on the external, on the legalistic, held men in some cases to a different standard, women to completely unfair standards. And it has left a lot of people, unfortunately, sexually broken. In some cases, I think possibly, I don't know if there's a causal relationship, but sexually abused and spiritually traumatized and a lot of people bitter uh, because they they weren't taught about sex and sexuality and faithfulness and marriage properly within the church, but were fed a strong diet of legalism and they just rejected it. So it's really not hard for us to always go back to the gospel, to always go back to that which we know um, we know is underneath all obedience. 
to the Lord. And that is a love for Christ and his undying love for us. Um, Okay, I want to quickly talk about a little bit of a different scandal, and that um, has to do with Max Lucado. And so I will uh, explain what went down with him in the past couple of weeks. But first, I got to tell you about one more sponsor, and that is Attitude. So Attitude creates these amazing sheets. My husband and I love our love our attitude sheets. They are so soft. We're always so excited to put our attitude sheets on and we just can't wait because they're 100% organic bamboo fabric. They save 500 times more water than cotton and produce 52 less carbon emissions. And so if you're looking for green sheets, they're not literally green, they're white. Maybe they come in green too, but our attitude sheets are white. But if you're looking to uh, be environmentally conscious, then attitude is a great option for you. And they really are high quality. I think sometimes we think that we have to sacrifice quality or sacrifice softness in our sheets in order for them to be green. Uh, But that is not true when it comes to attitude. So unlike cotton, which consumes massive amounts of water, energy, and chemicals during production, attitude uses organic bamboo, the most resource-efficient plant on the planet. Attitude's 100% organic bamboo fabric has a unique silky, smooth, and feathery soft texture. They're not exaggerating when they say that. That's not hyperbole. Like even before you wash them, they are immediately so soft. It's almost like you feel like you can't touch it because it's so soft. I love sleeping on our attitude sheets. You can try attitude bedding for 30 nights. If you're not completely satisfied, return it for a full refund. Uh, right now, you can get 20% off your order plus free shipping when you visit attitude. That's E T T. I-T-U-D-E, attitude.com slash Allie and enter promo code Allie. So 20% off your set of sheets or 20% off your order plus free shipping if you go to attitude.com slash Allie, promo code Allie. So attitude, that's as in eco attitude, attitude.com slash Allie, enter promo code Allie, 20% off and free shipping. All right, now I want to quickly talk about Max Lucado. A lot of people really like Max Lucado now. Some people feel like he has kind of revealed himself to be uh, on the left side of the aisle. I would say that that's probably true on some issues. I'm not saying that he has gone like full woke or full leftist or anything like that, but certainly there were some things said during the election. There are some different teachers that he elevates that don't seem to be in line with, you know, theological conservatism. And so people have kind of been questioning Max Lucado, at least theological conservatives have been questioning Max Lucado for a little bit. Um, And they were very perturbed by this exchange that happened between him and the Washington National Cathedral. So Max Lucado was invited to preach at Washington National Cathedral in D.C. um, on February 7th, uh, when this is according to the Federalist. When the Washington National Cathedral announced on their Facebook page Lucado would be preaching their Sunday service, calls for him to be disinvited flooded in. And that is because apparently of a sermon that he gave in 2004. And I can't imagine it's the last sermon that he talked about this subject in. But he said that homosexuality is a sin and that God instituted marriage between a man and a woman and only condones married sexuality. Now, I will say I have not listened to this sermon, so I can't tell you exactly 
uh, what it said. Uh, but uh, the congregants, the people who were attending, who were going to attend this church service, were very um, upset about this and did not want him to be invited because of this sermon. Uh, Lucado did end up preaching, but, quote, only after retired Bishop Gene Robinson, the Episcopal Church's first ordained openly gay bishop, was recruited to preside over the Sunday morning service as a calming device. Robinson provided a meticulously worded eight-minute-long explanation for why Lucado's invitation was not revoked. To his credit, Robinson's speech was a thoughtful and classical liberal explanation for why inclusion, quote, sometimes includes people we don't agree with much at all. But he put his explanation to... But he put his explanation to the congregation in the simple and binary context of good over bad, right over wrong, us against them. So he said this in his sermon, uh, Bishop Robinson, to this angry congregation who was about to listen to Max Lucado. Let me just say this carefully to those of us who are LGBTQ. We've won. We have won. We know how this is going to end. This is going to end with the full inclusion of gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer people, non-binary people. All kinds of people. We know how it ends. Um, he concluded his side, the zero-sum victors, good over evil. That pulpit is their pulpit, and they will manage it according to their ascendant beliefs. And Reverend Randy Hollerith, dean of Washington National Cathedral, was also compelled to distance himself from his gentle guest during the Sunday service and did so in his uh, carefully threaded introduction to Lucado's sermon. He you know, caveated basically Lucado's presence and his sermon by saying before before it that, you know, he has said some things in the past that have made the LGBTQ community hurt. Um, let me be clear. I don't agree with his statements. The cathedral does not agree with his statements, but here's Max Lucado. So that was his introduction. Max Lucado then felt that he had to write a letter to the cathedral after he gave his sermon to kind of apologize for what he said. And so the sermon or the, the letter is available online. I'll read you part of it. He says, faithful people may disagree about what the Bible says about homosexuality, but we agree that God's holy word must never be used as a weapon to wound others. Uh, he also said that he believes in a God of unbounded grace and love and that LGBTQ individuals and LGBTQ families must be respected and treated with love because they are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, um, let me let me clarify some things that I think that he is correct on and some things that I think that he is incorrect on in this particular letter. First of all, I don't believe that he should have written the letter in the first place. If he he go he does say in the letter, look, I affirm traditional marriage between a man and a woman, but obviously he apologizes for the sermon that he gave and he apologizes for the apparent pain that he caused. And he does say um, that, look, we can, faithful people can disagree on homosexuality, but what we know for sure is that the Bible is not supposed to be weaponized. Um, the reason why I'm troubled by that is, uh, is, is, is manifold. First of all, the Bible is very clear about homosexuality. This has not just been a historical teaching of the church that is based on the Bible, but it is very clear in scripture. This is not one of those issues, like the issue of eschatology, the end times, or the issue of, I mean, I personally don't think the Bible is muddy on predestination, but faithful people do disagree on predestination. We do disagree on Calvinism versus Arminianism. We do disagree on infant baptism versus credo baptism, believer's baptism. We do, uh, you know, 
We disagree on things like whether or not believers are going to endure the great tribulation, premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. So there are issues in which faithful, faithful, uh, faithful Christians can disagree. But homosexuality being as clear as it is in the Bible is not something that people who believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God uh, is infallible and is trustworthy, can or do disagree on. We've talked about that on this show very many times, that homosexuality in the Bible is not just this word uh, that was thrown in there in the last century. It's not just this concept that was placed in there by you know, insecure, straight, patriarchal men. It wasn't just this concept that was popularized in the modern era. It's not just something that was in Levitical law. It's not just something that we throw out. The concept, not just, not of homosexuality, but if we look at the Bible from the positive sense of not just what does God prohibit, but what does he actually say is good. We see the definition of marriage that is rooted in creation. It's reiterated throughout scripture in both the Old and the New Testament. It's repeated by Jesus himself himself in Matthew 19, when he defines marriage as between a male and a female, God made the male and female, and they come together in marriage and the two become one flesh. He's talking about divorce, but he clearly reiterates the original designation of marriage and definition of marriage as male and female. It is reflective of Christ in the church and is therefore representative of the gospel. That's the alliteration that I came up with to talk about the Bible's emphasis of and strict definition of what biblical marriage actually looks like. So it's rooted in creation. It's reiterated throughout scripture. It's repeated by Jesus himself in Matthew 19. It is representative of Christ in the church as we read in Ephesians 5. And then it is also therefore representative of the gospel. And so the union between a man and a woman is seen throughout scripture. And it doesn't just have a physical significance, the Bible tells us. It has an eternal gospel significance to it. There's there's no way to read Ephesians 5 and that tells us that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And the wife is supposed to submit to her husband as to the Lord. This is a reflective of this eternal relationship between Christ and the church. There's no way to read that outside of the heterosexual context. And so anyone who says, oh, this is just a slight disagreement between Christians. This is just something that we can kind of dance around different interpretations of. I don't know that it's understood that there is a spiritual, eternal gospel significance to God's definition of marriage that was started in the garden. That's a like a Genesis 1 issue. And so for Max Lucado to kind of push this into the realm of the secondary or the tertiary, just like eschatology or just like, you know, anything else uh, is 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 not it. It's not accurate one. And it's not representative of what I think he actually believes and knows to be true as someone who knows, believes in and I think loves the Bible. And he emphasizes the more important thing is that we agree that God's holy word must never be used as a weapon to wound Others And while I do think that that's true, uh, the Bible is referred to as a double-edged sword. The Holy Spirit does use God's word to convict us of our sin. And we cannot equate wounding people with saying, uh, with saying what the Bible says is true. 
and with agreeing with God. We cannot equate wounding people with offending people by what God actually says. Remember, we talked about on the episode a few weeks or a couple weeks ago on Valentine's Day, what is love? If God is love, then that means that everything that God says is good and right and true is love. That means everything God does is love. That means that everything God defines, he defines in love. That means his boundaries is love. His, um, Definition of sin is love. His means of salvation and redemption and sanctification is love. And we do not understand love if we do not know God, since God is the perfect embodiment of love. And if God is love, we don't define love and then put that characterization, that human characterization of love on God. That means we go to God to learn what love is. And so if God says something is right or God says something is wrong and we know that God is love, then what he says is right and wrong is done out of love. And so it is loving for us to agree with God on that. Um, so he almost seems to seed ground in this way to say that, oh, you know, using the Bible to say what God says is sin and what God says isn't sin is a way to wound people. Well, you're almost apologizing for what God says is good and right and true. The God who is love, the source of wisdom, the source of truth and morality, you're almost trying to let him off the hook by saying, oh, I'm sorry for using the Bible. What God says is good and right and true as a way to quote, wound someone. Um, And that also makes me sad. I mean, I would say that that's a form of blasphemy. He said that he believes in God, the God of unbounded grace and love. Yes, so do I. And we know how that God defines things. We know how that God defines sexuality and defines marriage. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. If we know, if we're starting with the idea that God is unbounded grace and love, again, everything that he commands is also unbounded grace and love. He says that LGBTQ individuals and LGBTQ families must be respected and treated with love 1000%. Of course, they are made in the image of God. Everyone is made in the image of God. No matter how you sexually identify, no matter what you believe your gender identity to be, like you are a valuable person because you are made in the image of God. And I do believe that God loves you because he created you and he sent his son to die for you. And there is all the compassion and grace and forgiveness for all of us in the world through Christ. That is absolutely true. That does not exclude me from saying, here's what God says is right. Here's what God says is sin. Here's what God says sanctification looks like. Salvation looks like. Here's what God says sexuality should look like. Those two things, if we have a right understanding of God being love and God being truth and God being mercy and God being holiness and righteousness, those two things for the Christian come together very easily in our mind, even if it's offensive to a world that does not understand that. And I'm just afraid that Max Lucado seeded too much ground here. I mean, I know that he did. He acquiesced too much. He um, apologized for something that he shouldn't have apologized for, unless there was something said in his sermon that I just don't know that truly was, you know, unbiblical and hurtful and hateful and unkind. Um, But if it's just a defense of marriage, the more you apologize to that, or the more you apologize for that, the more that you are apologizing for the God of the universe. God doesn't need, he doesn't need to be let off the hook. Uh, We, all we have to do is agree with him and we can trust that we are on the quote, right side. Um, And so I'm, I'm sad about this. I'm not surprised by this with Max Lucada. Like I said, a lot of people saw him leaning to the left on social and political issues. And uh, I have often said to the 
to the disappointment and frustration of a lot of people, typically when we see someone going to the left politically, um, their theology is going to go that direction as well. Not always, uh, but typically because those things are so intertwined. Um, And so he does say that he still believes in the traditional definition of biblical marriage. um, And that's good. If that's the case, and if you are agreeing with this God that you agree is God, uh, is the God of unbounded grace and love. And if you agree that people who identify as LGBTQ are made in the image of God, and therefore they are valuable and they are just as much in need of salvation through Christ as the rest of us are, then there is no apology to be made for saying what scripture says about marriage and sexuality and sin and salvation and sanctification and all of that. There is no acquiescence. There is no ground that needs to be seated on that. Um, Like I said, God doesn't need to be let off the hook. And so I think once again, if you're someone who has learned from Max Lucado, if you have appreciated his teachings, appreciated his books there, he has so many wonderful books. Um, If you are someone who has appreciated him, I don't think that you have to now say, I can't appreciate anything that he's ever written or anything that I've learned from him is now is now counterfeit. Um, Certainly, certainly not. But we have to realize that we're all fallible people, that teachers are fallible people. And this is the wonderful thing I think about Protestantism in particular is that we don't elevate our teachers um, to the point of being insulated at all from criticism, or at least officially we don't. Uh, We shouldn't. There are still, uh, I think, systems and hierarchies in place that do that, unfortunately. But it's a good reminder that part of Protestantism and part of the Protestant Reformation was to say, look, we're not going to look to these leaders as infallible because we believe that God alone is infallible and we believe that we can trust what he says in his word and that whenever our leaders fail us, we can go to the Bible to remind us what is good and right and true. And ultimately, our leader is Christ and he is our only intercessor. The Bible says he's the only intercessor between God and man. And so when Max Lucado disappoints us, when Carl Lentz disappoints us, when Ravi Zacharias disappoints us, all we have to say is, is, I still trust Christ because he is reliable and he is trustworthy and he will not fail me. He will not betray me. He is not leading a double life. He is not pretending to be something that he's not. He is not going to compromise on the truth of God's word. He is truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the father except through me. That does not change based on what leaders do or don't say. All leaders are going to disappoint us in small ways and big ways because we are fallible. We are sinful people. We are vulnerable to temptation. And of course, Satan wants nothing more than to try to present the church as this hypocritical, uh, duplicitous body that has nothing to offer the world and that um, is, you know, has only caused harm. That is certainly something that Satan wants to do. But look, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church, no matter what its purported leaders do or don't do, say, or doesn't say because the future of the church, the perpetuation, the protection of believers is reliant on the God of the universe, on Christ himself, who, like I said, does not fail us. All right, that's all I've got for today. Tomorrow, uh, we are going to, I'm going to talk to Lila Rose, who is a wonderful pro-life activist. 
We're going to talk to we're going to talk about the Equality Act and what it means um, in the way of abortion. And then we're also going to talk I'm going to talk separately about more about the Equality Act. Once again, we've talked about it several times, but it is in Congress this week and probably will be passed um, as I'm speaking. It probably will pass the House. Don't know about the Senate, but we'll talk about that tomorrow. We'll also talk about um, Xavier Becerra, a nominee by Biden and how rapidly pro-abortion he is and what that means for pro-lifers. Okay, I will see you guys back here then. 